Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast episode, I mean epilogue to chapter 2. In today's chapter, Tolstoy discusses the biographical, the universal and the cultural historian and points out the ways in which they are all wrong about the forces of history. Do any of these approaches seem plausible to you? And what do you think Tolstoy will propose as the correct approach to history? Or will he just continue to criticise others' views and never reveal his own? Twisted Every Way says, Well, I stopped and started this chapter like six times because I just couldn't get into it. And Warren Kovovi says, Okay, I'm no writer, but I can't help but feel like Tolstoy could have condensed and combined these chapters. How many times are we going to hear how historians are wrong about XYZ? Good thing he didn't put these chapters at the beginning of the story because I likely would have had second thoughts if I had to deal with these out of the gate. Uh, yeah, it's a really shite way to end a book. Um, a summary would have been way better. Karakikar says, I'd like to react to this paragraph to find component forces equal to the composite or resultant force. The sum of the components must equal the resultant. This condition is never observed by universal historians. And so to explain the resultant forces, they are obliged to admit in addition to the insufficient components, another unexplained force affecting the resultant action. While Tolstoy doesn't say it, I think he might be refuting Hegel here. I've linked the Wikipedia article on the philosophy of history, where they talk about Hegel's dialectic. This is a complex idea I recommend anyone actually interested in the meat of Tolstoy's argument can look into, though at this point I'm sure that's very few people. It actually makes it sound more interesting than what Tolstoy made it sound so maybe I will read it, but not right now. FDLP says, Tolstoy's general outlook grew towards anti-rationalism, so I don't think he believes that a correct approach is possible. Rousseau and Schopenhauer were influences to this outlook. There are lots of examples in War and Peace and Anna Karanadev where characters try to rationalize one way, then another, but ultimately go by their intuition, sometimes to good consequences and vice versa. Um, well, you know, the surprising, most interesting bit of the conversation was when Kara Kickass went deep into it. Maybe going deeper into it is what we've got to do. Someone, this is your homework, guys. Someone figure out what the hell Hegel's dialectic was and what he was on about. And um, give me a explain like I'm five. Um, all right, let's read the next chapter. What would that be? Epilogue 2, chapter 3? Yeah. It's a short one. It goes like this. A locomotive is moving. Someone asks, what moves it? A peasant says the devil moves it. Another man says the locomotive moves because its wheels go round. A third asserts that the cause of this movement lies in the smoke which the wind carries away. The peasant is irrefutable. He's devised a complete explanation explanation. To refute him, someone would have to prove to him that there is no devil, or another peasant would have to explain to him that it is not the devil, but a German who moves the locomotive. A German. Uh, only then, as a result of the contradiction, while they see that they are both wrong, but the man who says that the movement of the wheels is the cause refutes him, for having once begun to analyse, he ought to go on and explain further why the wheels go round until he has reached the ultimate cause of the movement of the locomotive in the pressure of the steam in the boiler. 
He has no right to stop in his search for the cause. The man who explains the movement of the locomotive by the smoke that is carried back has noticed that the wheels do not supply an explanation and has taken the first sign that occurs to him and in his turn has offered that as an explanation. The only conception that can explain the movement of a locomotive is that a that of a force commensurate with the movement observed. The only conception that can explain the movement of the peoples is that of the sam- of some force commensurate with the whole movement of the peoples. Yet to supply this conception, various historians take forces of different kinds, all of which are incommensurate with the movement observed. Some see it as a force directly inherent in heroes, as the peasant sees the devil in the locomotive, others as a force resulting from several other forces, like the movement of the wheels, others again as an intellectual influence, like the smoke that is blown away. So long as histories are written of separate individuals, whether Caesars, Alexanders, Luthers or Voltaires, and not the histories of all, absolutely all, those who take part in an event, it is quite impossible to describe the movement of humanity without the conception of a force compelling men to direct their activity towards a certain end. And the only such conception known to historians is that of power. This conception is the one handled by means of which the material of history as at present expounded can be dealt with, and anyone who breaks that handle off as Buckle did without finding some other method of treating historical material merely deprives himself of the one possible way of dealing with it. The necessity of the conception of power as an explanation of historical events is best demonstrated by the universal historians and historians of culture themselves, for they professedly reject that conception, but inevitably have recourse to it at every step. In dealing with humanity's inquiry, the science of history up to now is like money in circulation, paper money and coin. The biographies in special national histories are like paper money. They can be used and can circulate and fulfill their purpose without harm to anyone and even advantageously as long as no one asks what is the security behind them. You need only forget to ask how the will of heroes produces events and such histories as theirs will be interesting and instructive and may perhaps even possess a tinge of poetry, but just as doubts of the real value of paper money arise either because being too easy to make too too much of it gets made or because people try to exchange it for gold what i'm getting my brain twisted in not just just sorry but just as doubts of the real value of paper money arise either because being easy to make too much of it gets made or because people try to exchange it for gold so also doubts concerning the real value of such histories arise either because too many of them are written or because in his simplicity of heart someone inquires by what force did Napoleon do this, that is, wants to exchange the current paper money for the real gold of actual comprehension. The writers of universal histories and of the history of culture are like people who, recognising the defects of paper money, decide to substitute it for money made of metal that has not the specific gravity of gold. It may indeed make jingling coin, but will do no more than that. Paper money may deceive the ignorant, but nobody is deceived by tokens of base metal that have no value but merely jingle, as gold is gold only if it is serviceable not merely for exchange but also for use. So universal historians will be 
valuable only when they can reply to history's essential question, what is power? The universal historians give contradictory replies to that question, while the historians of culture evade it and answer something quite different. And as counters of imitation gold can be used only among a group of people who agree to accept them as gold, or among those who do not know the nature of gold, so universal historians and historians of culture, not answering humanity's essential question, serve as currency for some purposes of their own, only in universities and among the mass of readers who have a taste for what they call serious reading. Alright, there we go. That's a chapter for you. Hey, how's your brain going after that? Is it mushed? Alright, well, unmush it. Someone, by the way, figure out... What, what was your homework again? Hegel? Was that his name? Hegel. H-E-G-E-L. Um, there you go. Homework. And I'll see you tomorrow.